welcome to Teaching Artist Podcast, a show dedicated to discussions of teaching art to kids, making art, and how those things overlap and feed each other. I'm Rebecca Potzagire, your host, an artist and educator. spoke about his teaching practice as well as his exhibit, Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future, which is in its third iteration at Play and Inspire Gallery, which I run with Maria Coit. He talked about the process of developing the exhibition in all three iterations, from private viewing at Yee Gallery in New York, to exhibit at El Lobi in Puerto Rico, to online at Play and Inspire. The title was chosen carefully to encompass the writing that accompanies the exhibition while also exploring the visual arts as a mode of persuasion, a mode of rhetoric. We talked about how apt the idea of uncertain futures feels at this moment. I loved hearing about how Lionel's process begins with drawing and watercolor and then expands into digital media, video, and transmedia storytelling. He talked about collaboration and how he works with fellow artists, curators, sound designers, and animators to bring his ideas to life. Go check out the show at playinspiregallery.com. We have also included some discussion prompts to share with students, and we'd love to hear your feedback if you do share those with your class. Lionel Cruet was born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, lives and works in New York City and San Juan. Cruet received a Bachelor in Fine Arts from La Escuela de Artes Plásticas in Puerto Rico and a Master in Fine Arts from CUNY, the City College of New York, and a Master's in Education from the College of St. Rose. He was the recipient of the Juan Downey Audiovisual Award in 2013 at the 11th Media Arts Biennale at the National Museum of Fine Arts in Santiago, Chile, and in 2018 was a fellow at the Socrates Sculpture Park in New York City, and a fellow from the Laundromat Project, an organization that focuses on the arts and social engagement in New York City. Cruet uses multiple media, including experimental digital printing processes, performance, and audiovisual installations to confront issues that concern ecology, geopolitics, technology, and colonialism. Cruet's artworks have been included in exhibitions at the Bronx Museum of the Arts in 2017, Centro de Arte Contemporáneo de Quito, Ecuador in 2021, Everson Museum of Art in Syracuse, 2017, Museo de Arte Contemporáneo in Puerto Rico in 2013, and Feria de Arte Sonoro at Universidad de Sagrado Corazón, Puerto Rico in 2014, and a solo exhibition at the Bronx River Art Center in 2015, which I actually managed education programs from 2010 to 2012 at the Bronx River Art Center. His work has also been reviewed in Made in Mind magazine, Design Boom, Terremoto MX, Daily Serving California College of the Arts, and Latinx Spaces. Curret works with the New York City Department of Education as well as multiple nonprofits that promote art and aesthetic education for immigrant youth. In 2020, he co-founded an independent pilot art program in Puerto Rico, Banasta, Residencia Artística, that offers an artist residency and sessions of art criticism to develop the artist production. Let's hear from Lionel. I am talking today with Lionel Cruet, who I'm excited to hear from and hear about your teaching career, your art career, where and how and if they kind of intersect. But we also have an exciting exhibit up that we're going to talk about. So I always like to start with just sort of your journey. How did you become an artist and an educator? Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening. Thank you, Rebecca, for the invitation. And I'm very excited to be sharing with you guys today and sharing with you some thoughts and some anecdotes and kind of like my background and how I arrived into 
into what I'm doing currently and also more about how I arrive into the this online exhibition that we're doing, Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future. Yes. And to answer your question, I feel that my practice as an artist and as an educator has happened simultaneously. Mm. Uh, I have uh, an interest on this aspect of participation through my work of art. And I am a true believer that the creative process of an artist depends so much on social relations and, you know, and the perspective of that viewer, right? And that interaction that happens. And then there's a reciprocity between that audience that perceives the work of art and that understand it at different levels. So I feel that the, a very important part is understanding how those messages are coming across through the artwork and being sensitive to that audience. Uh, and that's how I kind of connected or that's how I see this bridge between art and, and my practice as an educator. That is when those moments connect. So my background as an artist, I've also developed through my education. I have felt that the wonderful opportunities that have has happened to me come exactly from uh, connections that I have had through my academic journey. And why not to continue within that environment? I'm an artist that have greatly developed, right, intellectually and even in the way that like the the craft process, even the research process have, um, it's, a, it's in direct relation with educational practice and academic practices. Mm -hmm. So that is also like another point where it connects. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. I love hearing those ideas about like the, the creation process, but then also the way that your work is viewed and the way people experiencing it like that connects to teaching. I love that. Yes. Yes. At some moments, some of those things are more explicit than others. And meaning mm -hmm. that some of the strategies that I use in my, in my teaching practice or in my practice as an educator, or even doing research, like sometimes are more explicit in some of the artworks than in others and others is more like interpretive. And I mm -hmm. feel that my audience too changes. It depends on the places where the artworks are presented or the installations or the, the dynamics of the, of the institutions that are presenting it that are more open to some sort of uh, an openness from an, that audience to explore their, their understanding of the artworks. And in other places, it's just more intuitive and they just happen to like absorb some of the things that I can later seeing in other iterations. But um, I think it, it, it depends very much on, on the location, on the moment. Uh, and I can think about something very clear, right? Like uh, before, like I will say in 2019, during the summer of 2019, I had an exhibition, a group exhibition that I was participating as part of a residency project in Germany and Berlin with Kultusschaffer. In uh, that exhibition, we were a month working with another artist during a month to be able to develop this, this exhibition. And it was a very well attended exhibition. And the audience was very receptive of the artworks that were exhibited there because it was an immersive installation. Like people had to literally get in and experience this sensorial space that we created. And the responses from the audience were very, very clear. You know, they got to talk to us face to face with the artwork and kind of like uh, develop their thought process of what they were observing. It was very immediate rewards and kind of like we, we got a sense of what the audience was experiencing. And I feel that in the most recent years, and I can think about last year when I was in at the Center of Contemporary Art in Ecuador, the exhibition that happened there was a process also of a long research and residency project that I was doing there earlier 2021. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting that my reception of what the audience got from the piece that I exhibited there, which was also an exhibition and a part of a group show, was through social media and through like through the means and the structures of social distancing. So I couldn't uh -huh. be able to interact with the people yet um, social media came to support how the audience were perceiving the the exhibition and how the audience actually participated in the in the exhibition, especially in the in the installation. So yeah, there's two points in there that are completely different, but yet participatory, yet open to hear how people were receptive about the show. <laughs> yeah. Do you feel like that has changed the way you're making work and the way you're conceiving of the end? result of the presentation of your work, this shift that, you know, I feel like now we're in this sort of un unknown time where things are coming back in person and then no, wait, we're going back online. Nope. Maybe we're back in person. Like there's this sort of, we don't know what it's going to be. 
but that shift from being in person and the immersive experience that can happen there versus a different, maybe also kind of immersive experience that can happen online. How has that shifted the work? Thank you that you're mentioning that because that actually connects to the exhibition that we're currently doing, Rhetorics of Uncertain yes. Future, that is precisely the kind of like the third iteration or the closing mm-hmm. of that chapter of uh, three different modalities that we present in the exhibition. So we started with a private viewing with my gallery here in New York at G Gallery, and that happened in late September. And we had this sort of one-to-one experience and you could actually book a visit to be able to see the exhibition just by itself and was the opening chapter of what I call Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future, where audiences were only seeing this large screen in the middle of the gallery with like in this deep red environment. And the animation on this TV was this wounded sea turtle that was actually kind of like in their doing the slight movements of of death in a way. And there was also an accompanying piece that was on a screen that was hanging from the corner left side of a pelican. There was a a headless pelican of an animation that was constantly flying in the opposite direction. I feel that this part of sort of intimate viewing, because people had to actually make a reservation to go into the gallery and see it, presented this sort of solitary experience that the audience was was doing with that. And it happened in a really great time because New York City still sort of in this wave of recovering or yet not recovering from COVID situation and social distancing is a real thing. So booking just a visit, just an individual visit to this space was was, was an opportunity to make the exhibition accessible to, to an audience in a different modality and that I have never done before. Uh, the second iteration of the exhibition happened in October in San Juan, Puerto Rico at a lobby with the support of this nonprofit organization that is an artist-run space. And it was curated by Diane Bras Feliciano. And this exhibition also was part of, it is the second part of, of Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future. And in this instance, it was just an entire immersive space. It was open during very specific times during the during the week, especially on, on weekends. And it was also with this modality that you could be able to book an individual visit if you wanted, like just do a reservation. I mean, I have, again, I have never done that and kind of like uh, troubleshooting with a lobby and with Vanessa and Melissa, who actually, they have done a miraculous job of maintaining mm-hmm. the track of how the exhibition was perceived. I mean, it was a very innovative experience because I have never had to be able to know in advance, like, who is the audience that is going to see the exhibition and at what times and how they perceive the show, like, on those uh, particular moments. And now with Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future with Play and Inspire, the exhibition is online. So it's an immersive exhibition, but it's online and people can have that immersive experience either through their mobile phones or even in their computers and have an extended perspective of that landscape, as I call it, of that perspective of that landscape in this virtual space. And it's it's providing a different experience, an experience that you don't need necessarily to do an RSVP. You don't need a key to be able to enter the space or you don't need that facilitation, but yet you can always go into the exhibition and see the space at any time during the duration of the exhibition. So I feel that the work has not changed in terms of the concept and in terms of the visual representation, but it has morphed, I think, in the ways mm-hmm. that are presented in, the, in the, the planning of how the audiences interact with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I I also am interested in how the curation between those three spaces maybe has shifted slightly. Like I know when Maria and I, Maria Coit, who helps me run Play and Inspire Gallery, when we first saw your images, you had sent images of, I think, people looking at some of those creatures that you had designed, but they were in sort of an immersive light space. And you could see that it was sort of a gallery space where the light was, this colored light was important and was a big part of it. But then there's also these sort of images and then playing off each other sparked this idea of like, well, we could do that in a website. We could have this sort of idea of an immersive light space on the screen 
with these images becoming things that are just floating in that screen somehow. It was interesting working through that with you and with the other curators that have been involved in the project in Rhetorics for an Uncertain Future. And then sort of your whole team pulling it together has just been really interesting. I'm wondering what that experience has been like for you. Absolutely. So one of the interesting things is that, that this entire project of um, Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future started or sort of developed from the research investigation that I was doing in Quito, in Ecuador, uh, late 2020, early 2021, as my project that I was doing there and the research that I was focusing was about the sort of coastal spaces, these liminal spaces, mm-hmm. tro- tropical and subtropical environments, and how the mangroves become this sort of important but invisible subject of this entire space that yet mm-hmm. is a is an extremely efficient and a very important ecosystem, but it's an also in a prompt disappearing. It is disappearing Mm. in the world due to um, many different factors that are related to climate change, to human activity, to different zoning, expansion Mm. of habitable spaces, and so on. And the proposal that I was developing at the the Center of Contemporary Art in Quito was precisely that, how the silent subject of this environment becomes so essential and so important not only for our life and, and, and for our for our present and for our future. So the images that I created from there was this entire orange tarp that was titled Without Horizon or Sin Horizonte. And it's this black sort of image of the shadows of a of a mangrove that mm. uh, that is yet a landscape but is there's no horizon, there's no point where it starts, where it ends, and there's this sort of skewed perspective that was very interested to develop in there sort of as a point of reflection about like how we are perceiving these spaces and perhaps like the an- absence of it. What 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 sort of uncertain future are we moving towards, right? Because uh, mm. this, this species of mangrove not only help them protect coastal spaces and, and coastal ecosystems and tropical and subtropical places, but are essential for many other things that happen around the world. And from there, I started diving more in deep into research about biology and recent investigations that had happened. And also because it's precisely an ecosystem that is beautifully connected, there's a lot of other species and life forms that like become an essential part of it. And from there is where those images of the those images are coming from of the wounded sea turtle, the 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 sea crab that is just by itself, or perhaps some of these mangroves that seem like unfinished that we're gonna see in this in this website when the rhetorics of an uncertain future online would play inspire are those precisely those shadows of those other life forms that are essential to the mangrove, yet online we see them scatter and sort of floating in this sort of light transition or vertical landscape, but they don't have a place to be. There's no, there's no mangrove for them to hide or to actually, mm. because it doesn't exist. So it's the closing chapter of that um, sort of slow process of disappearance of this ecosystem. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it's so poetic and beautiful and heartbreaking <laughs> and It also feels, you know, I know the focus is thinking about climate change and the current climate catastrophe that we're, you know, experiencing, but it also, the title and even just like the, the, I mean, I'm going to say poetic again, (laughs) just how the images and the light and the color all kind of come together fits into all the other things that we're experiencing right now. This, like I think I mentioned earlier, this sort of unknown with the pandemic, this idea of an uncertain future feels just very apt right now in so many ways. Yeah, and the title of the exhibition was something that we thought out and I thought out through the process of creation, because perhaps for a person might not be something explicit or direct with this ecological concern or something that extends into the narrative of, of climate change, because when we think about rhetorics, is is the art of persuasion, and it's something that mm. we use in the academic in the academic environment, and we use as a way to be able to persuade, to be able to talk about logic, to talk about grammar, to talk about how we actually present a clear discourse about something, and mm. that is something that in the academic environment we try um, students and people to be able to engage with, so they can have a very clear perspective about what they're presenting. So with 
this exhibition, one of the discussions that I had with Diane as we were developing the, the concept of this, of this entire show was about what is that moment of persuasion and how we can bring this art of pers persuading, but extending it from right from writing, from research, that it was the paper that she presented, but also through the extension of art and how can this ideas of persuasion be presented through the modes of the visual arts. And just always thinking about this, this sort of unknown future. future. The future is something that we cannot predict and that is certainly something that is unknown, but it's specifically about the subject that's even more obscure because we just don't know what is going to be in the next like 10 years, in the next 35 years. We have some sort of a horizon of how this is going to look like and just by pure inferences and research that has happened, but it's unclear. And then if mm -hmm. we like, I think the purpose of the of the exhibition for me as an artist is presenting these images that are slightly poetic, as you said, but also symbolic of something mm -hmm. that can make us think about what is going to happen next or how this, this space is going to happen and presenting chapters and moments where the audience can have an access to it. Mm -hmm. I also think about my audience in a wider range, and that is something that we experience in all the, the iterations of the exhibition is that the Rhetoric of an Uncertain Future is accessible to a younger audience, to a more adult and more focused into the art audience, but someone that doesn't necessarily know about art can also understand what is being presented in here. One of the beautiful anecdotes that I have from the moment that we exhibited at a lobby in Puerto Rico was that I was visited by one of the grassroots organizations that protects one of the most biodiverse areas in the Northeast of Puerto Rico, and they are very active about how this space needs to be protected because of the high activity of sea turtles that come every year to be able to use these beaches and this entire area as a, as a mm -hmm. nesting place. And they came to the exhibition, they're like, wow, you're presenting a perspective that is something that we actually are protecting and that we're promoting and that is our mission. But, you know, I think the moments that we can join forces through the arts, through education, through this grassroots organization, we can build on a stronger voice. And that was something that I presented to them. I'm like, we are talking the same language, it's just from different perspectives. Yeah, I love that connection. And the idea, like you talk about persuasion, and I feel like what you're doing is sort of storytelling, which is a way of persuasion. You know, people are clicking through and looking at the, you know, first they're presented with these images of, as you put it, sort of shadows of these creatures. And then if they kind of explore a little bit and click through, they start to see this story being told by these images and by, by these creatures about these creatures. And like, what, what do these, you know, this, this pelican and this sea turtle, what do they have to tell us about our world? It's really beautiful. And those images are precisely drawings. Like they all came out from like watercolors or real drawings mm -hmm. on paper. I know that most people have an understanding about my work that is very extended into this audiovisual media and video and sound and everything. But at the core of it, there's also like a very uh, traditional practice of just sitting down mm -hmm. and sketching and brainstorming and drawing. And I use watercolor because it's a fast process to be be able to like uh, create imagery and create images and this transparency that it that it creates is sort of uh, make a connection with the way that I work with lights and spaces so that's why mm -hmm. I, I, I use that medium but all of the images that you guys are going to see in the in this online version of rhetorics of an uncertain future and even in the previous um, iterations of this exhibition are actually coming from a drawing from a real drawing and a real watercolor and when, when you talk about storytelling, it's important, too, that um, I'm not using or, or even the curator and I, like as we were developing this project, we're not using the term of transmedia storytelling or transmedia project as a way to justify the project. But it's actually uh, something that is precisely happening. A transmedia mm -hmm. storytelling is the practice of designing and even sharing ideas and participating with an audience through a one through one narrative that it extends into different formats and to different media. So you can see the exhibition through different postings that is happening in social media platforms, such as Facebook or even um, Instagram and uh, to an extension of TikTok. But also you can go to the 
to the exhibition and to the physical space and see it. Now with rhetorics of an uncertain future for play inspire, you can see it in an online website. So it's a show that, or it's an exhibition that have multiple components that can be accessed through different modalities and through different media. And that is, that is my interest at the end of the day, that all of these sort of uh, drawings or creatures that are being presented in here have their own life form and can be projected into different environments. Mm, I think that's beautiful. And so I feel like helpful and interesting for artists to hear that it does begin with like this drawing practice and watercolor and you know, you see the the end result and you maybe think that, you know, this guy's just on the computer all the time <laughs> or, you know, it's it's completely digital or it's something else. But it's great to hear that there's that sort of basis of like a drawing practice. And I know there's also an aspect of collaboration. And I know you've touched on it quite a bit with, you know, collaboration with the curators, but then there's also collaboration with like sound people, musicians, even like maybe graphic designers or graphic, you know, people that are, that are more experienced there. There's like all these different collaborations. And then even, you know, going kind of back in time, the work you were talking about in Berlin sounded like there was a big aspect of collaboration there as well. I'm, I'm curious, I guess, if you could talk about collaboration in your work in general, but maybe also with this exhibition. Yes. (laughs) Totally. Collaboration is a very important part because I feel that along my career as an artist and as an educator, I have come across with so many creative people that are experts into different areas and whom I actually trust and respect their work very much. And why not to be able to like join forces or to be able to build a bigger discourse or a bigger perspective into something, introducing sort of like their talent in this process. So for rhetorics of, of an uncertain future for playing Spire, as well as a Lobby and as well as G Gallery, there has it's a team of people that I have been able to bring together. So the images that you uh, see on the website that are sort of animated, these animated drawings were precisely made in collaboration with three different animators. One of them is Daniel Capote. He took part of the animation of the pelican, of the headless pelican from a drawing that I was making. Hector Cruet, who was actually my brother, he was animating some of the birds that you're going to see also in the online version. And the sea turtle was animated by Kelly. She's a professor at Moore in Pennsylvania, and I have Mm. known by reference her work. And she was very focused to bring this drawing of this sea turtle and transform it into a puppet that can be able to, you know, to sort of do the slight and subtle movements as a sea turtle will look like Mm. in those instances. So I know that they are, they specialize on making characters or sort of transforming still images into moving images. And I was extremely moved by their talent and by the way that they work. The Mm. sound compositions that you're going to see are the soundscapes, as I call them, are uh, created by multiple composers. And in this instance, the ones that were participating for this exhibition was Angelica Negron. Angelica Negron is a Puerto Rican composer and musician. She uh, is widely recognized and very known for bringing this sort of very reflective sort of sounds that I felt that could be in dialogue or, you know, were in a way connected to what I was presenting. And I showed her some of the images and some of the ideas of the show. And she completely about like some compositions that she and how could this be you know connected into this and that's how we arrive into into it mm-hmm. also the other sound and compose the other soundscape that you will see another composer that was participating with me was Damian Quiñones Damian Quiñones is also as well as Angelica they're both composers musicians and educators as well so they knew the perspective mm-hmm. of what I was bringing with this exhibition when we um, did the proposal and when I talked to them at the beginning and they knew what was the underlining of all of this which is very important that's why I like collaboration with peers that have sort of this like mind or that understand the clear idea of what you're presenting is important but also in terms of the preparation and the production of the show there has been other people that have been involved in the three iterations of the work so I have Eric Sanchez who actually worked 
also installing some of the parts, Juan Felipe Paredes. I have Yomari Rodriguez that like work with some of the text and the, the text that was presented on the on the exhibition. I have Cecilia San Vialbok, who was actually director of a gallery, who was on board with the project from the very beginning. Maria Rodriguez that like helped me with the process of editing and copywriting of all the text that you're gonna see through the exhibition and even clicking to some of these creatures. There's gonna there's a drop menu or sort of drop box in, in there with text that is written she helped me to figure it out how the how these ideas were coming across uh, clear in a clear way Luis Rivera Sanchez also fellow artist from Puerto Rico who also participated in the creation of this entire mural at the, in the space and in, in lobby in Puerto Rico and at the end there's many people that have been involved into into the process and I please forgive me if I <laughs> lack of mentioning of all of them including uh, the curator Diane Bras Feliciano, who was also like very on board with the project from the very beginning and kind of like seeing the entire project as it was in the process of making. So, yeah. Yeah, I love hearing that. Hi, folks. Thanks for listening. I hope you're enjoying this episode. I'm jumping in to share one of the tools that I love. If you're thinking about starting your own podcast or video series, Zencaster is super helpful. Zencaster is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video without needing all the technical know-how. It records each guest locally and then uploads crystal clear audio and video right into the suite so you have high quality raw materials to work with. You can try it out for free at zen.ai slash teachingartistpod and if you do decide to sign up for a pro account, you get 30% off with this link and you'll be helping support this show. I love Zencaster because it records two separate tracks to make editing easier, and all I have to do is send a link to the guest. It can also handle multiple guests, and there are options for audio only, recording audio while viewing video, or recording both audio and video. I usually opt for just audio so I can record in my PJs. <laughs> now the secret's out. The link to get 30% off pro and throw some support our way is zen.ai slash teaching artist pod. I'll throw that link in the show notes as well. So you can try Zencaster. You know, you also talked about working with some people who were also educators, which made me think it might be interesting to hear more about sort of that side of your life. So you're, you know, working on these exhibitions, which are, it sounds like it feels very consuming, like they're, you know, these really big ideas. And you're working with this whole team, kind of directing this team to bring these ideas to life. And at the same time, you're teaching. So <laughs> what does that look like for you? Like, where were you teaching? What's your sort of teaching situation now and what has it been as you've been working through this um, series of exhibits? Yes. Yeah, so my teaching situation, thank you for asking me this question because I feel yeah. that often for people it's obscure because teaching is something that I feel that is very subjective and it depends on the person and depends on the circumstances of each individual. But for me, my teaching situation is that I, I specifically work with a small program in New York City that is supported by the state and by the city and also in part by uh, different nonprofit organizations. And we have a team of people. We work with young adults, immigrant young adults. Uh, so we work with people from different backgrounds, from different countries, people with different circumstances, such as from dreamers to people that are recently immigrants in the city, undocumented, with a diverse type of backgrounds, but with a rich artistry, as I call it. And those, I work with them developing different strategies of not only like art and aesthetic appreciation, but also reinforcing academics, reinforcing literacy and learning English at the end of the day too, through the arts. 
Uh, and mm -hmm. all of that happened through a process of collaboration that I do with different educators and different content and core areas to be able to prepare those young adults in a period of like three to four years so they can do an, a, a transition into college in the United States. Mm -hmm. And again, I reiterate that they're young adults because some of them are, they range from the age of like 17 to 21. And we prepare them at that stage because some of them might not have documents because they might have lost them due to different circumstances. And we, we do different process of assessments to see where they are and where is their areas of interest and how can they be able to re-enter this higher education environment, knowing what they will expect and sort of prepared, not only like academically, but also socially, emotionally, and being able to have the support that they will need. And I arrive into working in this, in this environment precisely through an artwork that I was doing at the time and my interest with having a diverse type of voices and participation and bringing sort of these ideas that immigrants hold, right? Where they mm -hmm. compare sort of like their landscape and where they come from to where they arrive now. And that's how I actually arrived working with this community. And it was originally a connection that I found through a nonprofit organization that was able to find this partnership. And from there, I sort of developed something that was more prolonged. And I feel like I'm part of a, a community precisely like <laughs> after my research and, and, and my desires to be able to bring these diverse voices. So a day for me will look like sort of a sort of a full time, like I will say like eight to, to four or eight to six, where I actually like develop different strategies. I work through like not only teaching, but counseling and building a community of young adults that they could be able to not only be friends, but support each other with these different academic challenges that we present them and to be able to assimilate living in a bigger city in a, in a city like New York and understand art and understand like sort of their background, recognize where they come from and how can they be able to be more empowered, talking about their culture, talking about their, their mm -hmm. artistry at large. So that is what I do. In terms of more recently, I have developed curriculum that connects with different subject areas, such as the sciences at large, mathematics, English language arts, and sort of global studies and seeing how like a case study through the arts can expand into all of these different areas. And one of my recent curriculums look specifically at these ideas of like sustainability and living environments and how artists have presented different perspectives towards that from like the perspective of care, maintenance and mm. having artworks that expand into the, the natural environment. And we look at the works of different artists like Merely Leatherman Euclid to artists like Andy Goldsworthy and how they have developed a lexicon through their process of like their art making in connection with the natural environment, not only from a perspective of, of art and aesthetic appreciation, but just about care. And that has been something that has been sort of happening recently with me. Amazing. Well, I love how that, it sounds like that curriculum development ties right into your own artwork and gives you this chance to explore I'm thinking two things, like one is sort of the history and sort of other artists working in similar topics, similar sort of themes that you're interested in as an artist, but then also how to talk about those topics and themes with a young audience, with, you know, an audience that might not be super well-versed in art and the art world. So being able to do that as sort of like, this is my day job. <laughs> I feel like that's yeah. just really, really valuable. No, and also it's very beautiful to understand that they come with different perspectives based mm -hmm. on their, their circumstances. And there's, you know, for them, for some of them, right, like art might be because, you know, because of previous exposure, art for them might be just like drawing or just painting. And it's in right now we're living in a moment where art is such an expanded field that have mm. Uh, multiple practices and that's why I teach in a way like study cases right that are very thematic very specific with this one I noticed that there's different ways that like based on their reciprocity about like what I was presenting is that there's different countries that manage their sustainable practices and their environmental and natural practices within communities and society in very different ways and there was moments where we did like uh, sort of debates 
you know, across or even between each other about like, you know, what, what are actually best practices of care with the environment? And, you know, mm. what is those scenarios of futures, right? If we can continue with this extreme consumption, you know, with this idea, for example, like landfills that are just completely filled, like what is going to be the, the foreseen future and, you know, how those spaces are managed into different in different countries right in comparison with within here and what will be the future for that and I think it is important for me to bring that through art and through this sort of debates that we're doing and analysis and everything because they are a future they are our future right like young people Mm -hmm. are going to be right are going to be managing the world pretty soon and then if they don't have an awareness about this what is going to happen right and we all believe like well you know with the management of disposals and talking about landfills and talking about sustainability in a sustainable environment everyone thinks that well i'm doing my part because i'm recycling but yet recycling is like one aspect of so many other things and mm-hmm. um, i think that's why i'm i'm mentioning also the work of Marilee Leatherman Euclid because like since 1970s she was presenting all of this concern through this residency that she did with the the sanitation department in New York City and what does that mean now right and what is that Mm going to mean in the future so bringing this perspective to to students that are like newly arriving into into New York City that are part of the city now like what what is their considerations when they not only observe art when they think about sustainability when they are encounter with this ideas of recycling and separating their disposals and what does it mean to go and buy something and dispose it and having a clarity about that is is important so I feel that as much Mm -hmm. as it's teaching art is also teaching about social responsibility yeah absolutely Uh, there's so much there (laughs) I want to grab onto you know you talked about sort of building community and this idea of reciprocity and really like I'm hearing how you value your students' knowledge and you value what they come in with. And I'm wondering if you could maybe share advice, like sort of like tips for other educators, how how to do that, how to build that community, how to kind of become this facilitator that shows your students how much you value their existing knowledge. Yes. Not easy. <laughs> right? right. No, right away when you mentioned this idea of building community, I I feel that it has something like this idea of building community and getting into social environments and finding sort of the commonalities among individuals has been something that is sort of innate in me. I come from a family of educators, people that are social workers. So it has been a constant conversation like in my household and in my environment since I was very young. But also one of the highlights that I want to mention is that I enriched myself when I did this program with the Laundromat Project because the Laundromat Project here in New York City is a wonderful organization that in a way prepare artists and give them tools to be able to understand what community means. What are those desires of community members, how they involve into your work, how like this liaison between nonprofit organizations, grassroots, bigger organizations, sort of community members and community leaders become an extreme support for the development of art. And if one considers itself as an agent of social change and as an artist, you cannot be able to create something and arrive into a place like an alien and just create something and pretend that a community will be able to be in sync with what you're creating because there's this association and we're continuing with a practice of colonialism, right? You go into a place and you colonize and you present what you want and then you rip it off from there and you leave. Mm. And that that is what has been happening as well, like in the arts. And I felt that the laundromat project I acquire so much tools from their programs and from the moments that we have to be able to exchange with different creators and people who were actually very aware of the social awareness through the arts with people that are like extremely versed in these fields. And I actually have to mention them because they know how to be able to prepare people in, in those instances. And they, in a way through this program and this year-long fellowship that I had with them, I acquire a lot of vocabulary and being able to to express myself appropriately with what I think about community, right? And what I think about this idea of building community. That that Mm -hmm. was innate, but I I wasn't so eloquent, I will say, about it. 
also I feel that experience is very important and working in a in a classroom environment and working within a school community it is something that it, being in so much in connection with this is something that you start seeing sort of the commonality and the interests and the needs of of people and sort of making them be part of those conversations and sometimes it's not so much about like what I ask them to do is about creating an, a scenario where it's safe for them mm-hmm. to be able to find those commonalities and then that is the point where I am it's just facilitating those safe spaces for them to be able to say like hey yeah I share that same that same idea have that same perspective I have lived through the same situation you know I crossed the border as you did, right? Like I, I'm learning a new language as you're doing. Like I thought that this might not be art, but yes, it is. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, I should not feel ashamed about like, you know, wearing a hijab or, you know, not being able to speak clearly because, you know, my my native language is Spanish or it's Arabic or it's Bengali, right? But we are here and we're sharing this space. And as much as I want to learn, I want to share it with you. Yeah, and the moments that I get to see that and seeing develop and through the lifetime of like you know years right after that and seeing that they build a stronger community is something that moves me of course this is not something that I can do by myself I think being able to have a team of people that are experts I'm not a social worker but having people that are knowledgeable about like social work around me is very important people that are also educators who have like a vast experience you know it's, it's important and being able to share those experiences with them is is key yeah, one cannot take an entire task like this by themselves and put it in a, you know, and one's back like it's impossible. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it takes time to build that, that trust, to build that sort of safe scenario. Yeah, building that trust and building that environment is something that has to come from the heart. Like you cannot do that. And I'm, I'm saying this to all of our listeners and people that are interested in working with community and creating some of this incredible ideas this has been this is something that has to be constant there has been something that needs to be a motivation that you have and that you will always find a new way like I will tell you that I have been frustrated at times there's moments that I just don't want to be able to like you know, go into this environments again there's moments where I say that I fall in love again and you know this mm-hmm. this ebbs and flow where humans as well and we're receptive to to this spaces so it's not it's, it's something that change mm-hmm. over time I mean you have to be strong and you have to be like have a, a motivation that it's always driving you to this environment yeah because working with people is not easy but it's not impossible <laughs> yep <laughs> yeah and then there's so many things that go into teaching you know there's dealing with all of the sort of bureaucracy and all of the the lack of funding, especially in the arts, you know, in arts education. And then I'm guessing almost like doubly so when you're sort of working through the arts in these, like, I feel like there needs to be some trauma-informed education there. There's like a, a group of you know, specialists, social workers, therapists, like people that are all kind of working together, but I'm sure there's funding issues constantly. And then working with many different schools and many different sort of stakeholders, that that's this other layer of potential frustration and potential joy. Like maybe there's both of those in there. Yeah. Or even potential imagination, I will say, because um, one of the things that I have noticed too, is that yes, there is also like a lack of funding, like the arts are not for some people, it's not seen as something important right and there's always the weight of like what will be like what is important for a young person to be able to know to prepare in the future and people think about all sorts of things and leave kind of like this part of the creativity and the creative imagination as a hobby or as a sidetrack Mm -hmm. of something and what we have known in the field of professionals that are coming out into the world right now is that creativity imagination resilience is an important quality it's a key quality that we are hoping people in the future will be prepared with, right? And it's something that is as important as learning other core areas and learning, you know, sort of very logical sort of material. And that is something that the arts can bring, but it's always something that is overlooked because people always Mm -hmm. think about art uh, or the creative and imaginative practices as something as a niche, right? It's like, oh, it's drawing or it's painting or it's this or it's that. And, you know, perhaps it's not just those things, but it's something wider than that. And it's something bigger than that as our imagination, as our mind is. 
And yeah, being being able to connect those areas and to think about that is important. Mm-hmm. And even thinking about funding in a very imaginative way is key. And that is something again, and I want to mention the laundromat project again, we had an entire session where we talk about, well, you know, like this idea of a scarcity and abundance is something that lies within our brain and within our mind. Like one can have like, you know, a million dollars, $50,000, $10,000 to be able to produce an artwork and we'll do nothing. Or, you Mm -hmm. know, a person can have just a budget of like, $100, $20, or a dollar and being able, like in terms of material things and being able to make wonderful things. So, Mm -hmm. so just, just is about how you're able to think about those instances and being able to bring strategies that will take that further. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that makes me think again of, you mentioned the artist Mira Latterman Ukulele and her almost like performance project and you know, I know she was connected with the sanitation department, but was that, you know, a huge big budget artwork? (laughs) I don't think so. And the impact of that is just incredible. And it's like, you're saying this sort of imagination, like why would an artist work with the sanitation department? What does like, where do those, those have nothing to do with each other. Right. And then, you know, she like thought beyond that. Yeah, absolutely. Thinking about thinking about with, with, the frame of mind of imagination and I think that is that is what it takes takes things into the next level yeah Mm -hmm. of course you know there's also very practical things because I'm not gonna I'm not if I tell you this I'm also gonna tell you another thing like there's practical things where you need to pay people to be able to like work with you you need to be able to pay for services and need things need to be made but the moment that you start thinking about those specific problems and start thinking around them and how to be able to create those moments of exchange, which is at the core of it, what is needed. Mm-hmm. That is what we want people to be able to build themselves with, right? Mm. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. And that also connects to this idea of, of teaching and creating those communities that you're, you know, you're building a community of students, but you're also in your art practice, building this community of collaborators, building this sort of community of viewers and participants. So there's like all these different levels of community happening in your work. I think that's really beautiful. Right. And (laughs) it's not like a clear sort of like recipe of how this happens, because I mean, communities can be so diverse as just like obligatory sort of tasks that they have to do, or some of them happen just by pure like uh, randomness, as I would call it. But (laughs) yeah, understanding that we all live in sort of a community and that sense that you have others around you is important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then I'm curious a little bit of like sort of the nitty gritty of being an artist. I always like to, to get and share advice from someone like, you know, other artists might look at you and be like, wow, he's done all these amazing projects. He's shown in Brazil and Ecuador and Puerto Rico and New York, like all these, you've got a lot going on in your art career. Do you have any sort of tips for artists along those lines? Like, how do you sort of get opportunities? How are you navigating the the art career and that aspect of being an artist, being able to show your work, being able to potentially sell your work? Like, how does that all work for you? Wow, there's a lot of things a lot, yeah. here. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things is having some clear goals. Like, I have some goals that I sort of outline for myself like yearly and sort of like from now on and where are the appropriate places who will be able to champion what I'm presenting and one has to be clear about that I think like artists always one kind of like the big show the this the that the museum this and that or sell the artworks millions of dollars and but it's like you know are you how are you clear and how are you like sort of sharing the same mission or the same like perspective and the same views that this places that you want to reach have right and if you're in dialogue with them I prefer that the people that I like work with and the institutions that I work with have some sort of um, shared uh, mission and vision about like what I'm doing and that is that is extremely important and thinking about like what can I do with what I with what I have and where can I expand and being clear and also being realistic about that is important 
-hmm. Also, one thing that I see that artists always lack is being able to be sensitive and to be able to be to share and to be able to build a community within themselves. Museums, institutions, like curators, they all talk to each other. They all know what they, each other are doing. They all support each other. Yet artists, the first thought is about like withholding everything that they have and not mm. being able to share those resources not being able to like be thankful about what they have. And, you know, that is that is something that I will share as a recommendation or as a as a thing. Right. It's like, you know, how much are you being able to enrich your immediate environment with others mm. yes and that is what it takes you from one place to another we live in a social world and art is so much connected to a social environment that if you are not aware of those social skills that you have and how you're able to share with others you're limiting your career to be able to develop yeah you know i hear the the analogy of like the pie or whatever that there's there's only so much and like i need my slice so nobody else can have it if someone else takes it then there's less for me but kind of getting past that mindset like exactly. realizing that yeah life isn't a pie <laughs> right but, and yeah. thinking about that that you know at the end of the day like art and art making and the process of like the creative process is one has a perspective about things, right? And and it's presenting a perspective and you have like, you know, you have to find those peers and those that actually like share that same perspective mm -hmm. because a lot of people is like, well, who the one that is going to make my career great is, is the star curator. But if that curator is mm -hmm. not on the same page as you are and is not concerned about the same things that you are, right? It's, ne it's not going to get anywhere. One of the things that I feel that artists are working a lot right now is these issues of identity. Mm -hmm. And if one talks about identity and it's something very personal, it's something bringing out, right, like who you are in the world and those modes of representation, if that person on the other side doesn't feel that identity is something important, you're not going to be able to come across. And this is one, this is one aspect of those many conversations that are currently happening in contemporary art, right? And that's where disassociation happens, right? With issues mm -hmm. of like, issues of race, issues of orientation, issues of like, you know, perspective about like post-colonial sort of trauma and everything. It's like, if, if, if a curator on the other side or if an institution on the other side don't truly believe in what you're presenting, you're not, you know, you're, you're not gonna be, you can't force someone to be able to be in that same space if they mm -hmm. can be able to understand what you're presenting. Yet it's not the end of it because there's always people that are, along with you and that understand that as well so yeah that's why I mentioned that it's something very social yeah mm -hmm. yeah I love that idea of really finding and seeking out those those people whether it's you know fellow artists curators institutions like all of those people in the world that connect with you and connect with your ideas and what you're doing it's really good advice also tricky i think <laughs> like yes like how do you yes, how do yes. you find them what do you <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think reading reading a lot is is very important seeing like mm. people's activity hearing from references like you know someone mentioned a reference to someone that like might be interested in what i'm creating i take a note on that and i start exploring that person and what is that what that person have done and what is their perspective and you know mm. we do an approach like why not? You know, there's people that are more receptive to approaches and others are not. There's people that like mm -hmm. read you and understand you and are in the same page, even intellectually and conceptually, and like we'll be able to jump on board. There's people that not. And we understand that we live in a very diverse world with people with different opinions and different perspectives of our life. It's, you know, that's yeah. the beauty of it. <laughs> yeah, I love that too. Just, you know, like maybe you hear this person might be interested in what you're doing. You kind of look them up and then you reach out and knowing that I'm going to reach out and I'm putting myself out there and we'll see what happens. This person may or may not be receptive to it, or it might be one of those situations where it's a curator. They're super busy right now. They get back to you six months, a year later. And they're like, oh yeah, by the way, I did get your message and I did look into you. I just haven't reached out again until now. <laughs> so it's a long game. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and then kind of wrapping up, I, I love also to hear, and I guess you kind of talked about this 
just what sort of a day in the life or a week in the life looks like. You're, you said you're teaching or you, you would be teaching, you know, almost full time. And then are you making work in the evenings on the weekends? And then even like all the travel for, for your artwork, how does it all fit in? How does that fit in? I think um, it all happens simultaneously. I think one of the things that is very handy for me is having a very clear agenda and a very clear calendar about like when things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. I plan some things like six months to a year in advance and some some others like happen on a weekly basis. Mm-hmm. For me, yes, I have a full time like, you know, commitment already with like my teaching practice and also my counseling practice and everything. And that is part of it. But that doesn't prevent me from being able to create my work because there's a lot of intellectual conversations and that ha- happen in there that feeds into the process of researching. So mm-hmm. it is important to also know that, that like, it's not like there's a day job and then I clock out and then something else starts. It's just that everything right. happens simultaneously. And I want to keep it in that way. And I have worked really hard to be able to get into that point. And I want it to remain like that. The moment that you see this divisions and partisan and like you know being able to feel frustrated about one thing and then excited about the other it's like when things are not working and you need to find another north I feel Mm. yeah so a a day for me will look like that I wake up usually like five six o'clock in the morning I drink coffee as everybody else I guess I suppose (laughs) (laughs) um Yes. And if I, I'm a very flexible person. So like I could be, I could be right now here in New York, I can be next week in Puerto Rico and like, I will find a place and I will find kind of like my track of my sort of lifestyle or how it happened last year that I was living in, in Ecuador and Quito. Of course, I planned, you know, everything around to be able to um, be supported. It's not like I'm going to be randomly like staying in any place, but just planning all of those things in advance is very important. Mm-hmm. Yes, a day for me looks very structured. I like I put timings between things. Uh, checking my emails is very important. Keeping track of some sort of what's happening in social media and having a, a social media plan is something that I also rely on using. And I'm not a person that is sort of sporadic uh, sharer with like social media. Like I have a plan of one when and what I want to do. Like as mm. time progresses some things are more clear than others because depend on on institutions and on people and on requests and all of that but yeah that's that's how I do it yeah <laughs> I that's think cool. life has changed for me recently in the past like two three years because I used to participate at more events going to more like physical opening receptions going to galas going out to dinners sharing with artists visiting studios and that has sort of slowed down very radically uh, just because I have been moving into different places, but also because of the health crisis and the concerns that we have right now mm-hmm. in our reality. So yeah, that's how it looks like. <laughs> yeah. It's always interesting to hear how it all fits in. And I love hearing how this sort of seamless quote unquote day job and your art career, like they're, it's not two separate things. They're sort of seamlessly interwoven. And that's really beautiful, I think, for other artist educators to hear that, you know, you can kind of mesh these two in some ways. Yes. Getting into a fun question I like to ask everybody, what are you curious about? Really broad question. What am I curious about? And what am I thinking about right now? I am thinking about many things. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I am thinking about how and what I'm going to present in New York City because on June of 2022, I will be participating in a group exhibition at the Elizabeth Foundation um, mm-hmm. as part of a residency project that started now and kind of like imagining what will be those possible scenarios and what is going to happen in there yeah so that is something that has me sort of curious and wondering about mm-hmm. yeah and yeah that is where I am right now <laughs> that's great yeah and I love the little like okay we know something's coming up in June keep keep your eyes out <laughs> yes and for all of our listeners um please you can find me on social media follow talk or you know comments on some things and you know, we can always expand from there. I'm also curious about even how like to 
be able to engage with a more a wider audience in TikTok, for example. Like that mm. is something that has me thinking about that. Yeah. And my yeah. students are making me think about it too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I know there's nothing like working with young people to kind of force you to be like up to date on technology. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, and what are your links? How can people find you? Yes, yeah, so people can find me with my first name and last name. So Lionel Cruet uh, or L Cruet. Mm-hmm. And then, yes, you can go into all different social medias um, like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, Pinterest, LinkedIn. Uh, with the majority of, of them, you can find me with my first name and last name. Yeah. Awesome. And I will link to that as well. Okay, I have a fun question I like to ask everybody as well. What is your favorite food? <laughs> My favorite food? Wow. This is really hard because oh. I have shared with so many people and some so many delicious things <laughs> that it's hard for me to pinpoint like on something specific. Uh wow. But I feel like some of the food and some of the cuisine that is actually from the Caribbean where I'm from like are actually really exciting there's a lot of like rice beans and very particular things that happen in the Caribbean that I that I'm always like gravitating towards and I think it's just because mm. it is my background and <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah it is I love that something that I like yeah yeah it's like going back home but it's great you can get so much of that amazing food in New York yes 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 and thinking about thinking even about like what will be what will be the future of that too thinking about like how are we changing in terms of our diets and what we eat as society and thinking about maybe like more of a meatless sort of diet and you know mm-hmm. what will that become when we have like traditions and, and customs on the line so that's why i yeah. feel that that is an interesting favorite food or yeah <laughs> yeah it's it's a loaded question right yes oh. And then is there, I know you've mentioned a lot of people that have worked with you and helped you through your work. I always like to leave room to just give a thank you or a shout out to anyone in particular that's that's really been like a supporter. Yes, for um, specifically about this, uh, the last part of like the online iteration of Rhetorics of an Uncertain Future with Play Inspire. I have some acknowledgements and I want to be able to thank um, Diane Bras Feliciano, who's the curator of the show, Maria Rodriguez for the entire editing and the, the editorial process through the, through the development of the work. Donal Escudero Rivera for co- coordinating the exhibition from the beginning to the end and noticing mm-hmm. all of the details on it. Also in terms of the animations to Daniel Capote and Hector Cruet. For the soundscape of Angelica, I want to thank Angelica Negron for being able to share her perspective through this sort of oral experience and being so open with me from the very beginning with this ideas of collaboration, someone that is so busy and everyone in here. And also especially to Play Inspire, you, Rebecca, for giving me this opportunity and for opening these channels of conversation and to Maria Coit as well. So thank you. Thank you. Yes, it's we are so excited to have it there. Everybody needs to go check it out. Go look at Lionel's work. Look at the show that's up now on the website, but also keep an eye out for more coming. Thank you so much for for this conversation. This was really great. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, you can reach me at Teaching Artist Podcast on Instagram or teachingartistpodcast at gmail.com. Who do you want to hear from? Please share your recommendations of teaching artists. And if you loved this episode, please subscribe, leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts, and follow me. It really makes a big difference. Thank you. Thank you.